0: A little over halfway through. That's all right. Well, last time, I had sort of taken a detour here and discussed at considerable length uh, the bitterness of attitude that Hezekiah had, and we heard a little more of that in the sermon today about the spirit of murder, and character assassination certainly is the spirit of murder and hate. But Hezekiah had been bitter. And I have said that a lot of the problems we have today may result from bitterness. Uh, But in one sense, I'm being awfully kind because most of the problems that we have really, even though some may take root in bitterness and anger over past abuses, a lot of it just gets right down to plain old carnal selfish human nature is what it gets down to. But I'm not going to take a detour into that. There's plenty of that that can be covered at other times. And indeed, the overall message is repent of self, and we'll see that probably before the day is over as well. So in Isaiah 38, uh, we're winding up the story about Hezekiah, which I believe is a story about Herbert Armstrong and his work and how it continued. Uh, about 15 years from the time of his heart attack until the church really broke up and went totally into Babylon again. So picking it up at the end of chapter 38, uh, Hezekiah realized that God was going to spare him and give him hope and an opportunity to live longer. Verse twenty, the Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, we will sing my songs to the string instruments all the days of our life in the house of the earth. He had been essentially a righteous man, but he did some things which weren't good and got lifted up in vanity and, and ego. Uh, but that got knocked down, and he humbled himself, as Second Chronicles thirty-two says, for Isaiah had said, Let them take a lump of figs and lay it for a plaster upon the boil, and he shall recover. Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the eternal, that he would continue to live and be able to worship in the temple? Of course, the boil disappearing was one sign that he would continue to live, because that was what was threatening his life. And also the sundial going backward ten degrees was a sign that God gave him that he would live. Now let's pick it up in 39, because there's a sequel to the story of the Assyrian here. At that time, Merodach-Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and was recovered. So this is on the heels of his recovery. Merodach was a Babylonian idol, and Baladan means Baal is his lord. So, Baal of Babylon sent to Hezekiah. Someone, in that sense, totally unrighteous and representing all that is pagan and wrong in society then and now. And Hezekiah was glad of them and showed them the house of his precious things, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious ointment, and all the house of his armor and all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion, that Hezekiah showed them not. So when Babylon came knocking on the door, Hezekiah did not hold anything back. Now I used the sermon and showed how Herbert Armstrong went to the leaders of this world and showed them everything that we had basically. (laughs) Invited them into the auditorium. And Jodakotch took it a step further. He showed them all the doctrines that we had had. And then he threw them out in the streets and went right back to Babylon completely and totally. And that's what happened to the work, I believe, of Hezekiah at the end time. Then came Isaiah the prophet to king Hezekiah and said to him, What said these men, and from whence came they to you? Hezekiah said, They are come from a far country unto me, even from Babylon. Then said he, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, All that is in my house have they seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not showed them. Then said Isaiah to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days come that all that is in your house and that which your fathers have laid up in store till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left of it, says the Eternal. And there is essentially nothing left of the treasure spiritually that we had in Worldwide Church of God. It has all gone back to Babylon. This is a good place to tie in Zechariah 5. I think I did this in that previous sermon, but while we're here in the context of Isaiah, those who have not heard that might be interested to get a brief synopsis, at least, of Zechariah 5. (coughs) This is the chapter after 3 and 4, which describe the work of the two witnesses at the end time, Joshua and Zerubbabel. Then I turned, after seeing Joshua and Zerubbabel standing as the anointed ones before God of the whole earth. Then I turned and lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a flying roll or scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. The length thereof is twenty cubits and the breadth thereof ten cubits. I believe I checked that. It's the same size as the tabernacle, which contained the law of God. Then said to me, or he said to me, This is the curse that goes forth over the face of the whole earth, for everyone that steals shall be cut off as on this side according to it. Everyone that swears shall be cut off as on that side according to it. In other words, the law of God is represented by this flying scroll, and anyone who does not keep the law of God is one to be cut off. I will bring it forth, says the eternal host, and it shall enter into the house of the thief, into the house of him that swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in the midst of his house and shall consume it with the timber thereof and the stones thereof. Whatever spiritual house we build, or ultimately even physical house we build, is going to be cut off. Now the spiritual houses that have replaced worldwide, for the most part, are going to be destroyed. And the physical houses that I mentioned in the announcements that are being built all over Israel in a great housing boom today... Are going to be destroyed. Isaiah even says they'll build houses but not live in them. They'll be taken away from them. Then the angel that talked with me went forth and said to me, lift up now your eyes and see what this is that goes forth. And I said, what is it? And he said, this is an ephah or a harvest basket, a measure that goes forth. He said, moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. So this is representing A harvest that is taking place all over the earth. And I believe that the work of Herbert Armstrong represents those whom God called to the harvest. And behold, there was lifted up a talon of lead. And this is a woman that sits in the midst of the ephah. So a woman representing a church in prophecy is in the middle or central to this harvest. And he said, this is wickedness. So, about the time that the two witnesses are introduced in Scripture, we find a church that has become wicked and is not living by the law of God anymore. And he cast it into the midst of the ephah, and he cast the weight of lead upon the mouth thereof. The message that woman, that church, will be shut off. You get a talent of lead in your mouth, that'll stop you. Then lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there came out two women, representing again churches. And the wind was in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork, which is an unclean bird. And they, they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heaven. That is... To fly elsewhere, or to go somewhere, in modern terms. Then said I to the angel that talked with me, Where do these bear the harvest? Where are they taking this harvest? He said to me, To build it and house in the land of Shinar, that is, in Babylon. And it shall be established and set there upon her own base. The base for the church has been removed from God's word, to Babylon to paganism and antichrist and it has been set on its own base there it's not on a base of God's law and his word but it's set on the base of Babylon and China so the Tkachians I think were the two unclean birds that carried that church away from God and into Babylon so everything Every secret, every treasure, every important thing we had has been stripped away and taken to Babylon. And only a small remnant is retaining the truth today. I think that fulfills what he's saying here in Isaiah 39, verse 6. Everything that we've laid up in store, all the good knowledge, the good doctrine, the desirable things of God. will be carried to Babylon, and nothing shall be left. The worldwide still exists in Babylon on that base, and there's nothing left that resembles God, and ultimately, of course, it will be destroyed completely. And of your sons that shall issue from you, which you shall beget. Now, he's speaking to Hezekiah, but let's apply this to the work today of Hezekiah, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. A eunuch is powerless to regenerate himself. And I did give a sermon about that. We'll encounter it again later in Isaiah, so I won't go there now. But I do believe that we are the eunuchs that keep the Sabbath, as Isaiah talks about. We're keeping the Sabbath, but we are powerless today is that pretty much the condition of the church? There is no power. In fact, there's a scripture that says there is no power that cometh to help us. We're basically sitting in the middle of Babylon and powerless to do anything. Although I believe God has opened the door and given us an opportunity to come out of Babylon, to leave it behind, and to begin to live as God would have us live, And do as he would want us to do. Some are taking advantage of that. Some cannot tear themselves away for whatever reasons. But most are not even aware yet. We'll see a little bit more in chapter 40. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, Good is the word of the Lord which you have spoken, He said, moreover, for there shall be peace and truth in my days. He felt, well, my sons may go to Babylon and they may castrate them, but at least during the rest of my days, there will be peace and not trouble. Let's see, a little more detail is given back in 2 Chronicles 32. I'm going to flip back there for a moment. 2 Chronicles 32, verse 31. He talks about the Hezekiah being proud and then humbling himself in verses 25 and 26. And uh, then some good works he did in his last 15 years. Verse 31, Howbeit in the business of the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, and the ones that brought the gifts we just read about in Isaiah, who sent to him to inquire of the wonder that was done in the land, God left him. God left him. Now, have we not seen many scriptures showing God has turned his back on the church today? Why? God left him to try him. God has turned his face from us today to try us, that he might know all that was in his heart. That's the way God finds out. The mountain, or Mohammed does not go to the mountain. The mountain comes to Mohammed. I use that as an expression that God doesn't in that sense come to us. He turns from us to see if we will come to him. He is the most important figure here. We are not. That which is less important goes to that which is important. And God wants to find out. So he has turned away to try us. God always has a reason for what he does. He's not trying to hurt us. He's not trying to get us to leave him. He created all. He did all. He called us. Now he wants to find out where our heart really is. And he's finding out that most will follow after the cares of this world. Now let's go to chapter 40. And there is a change here. It becomes very encouraging. While we've had some very somber, some very strong warnings of and messages here, we come to a point where God begins to comfort. And we need to understand that all these scriptures up to this point, through 39 chapters, have been referring to the church. And while there are some bright spots in there, like chapter 11 and chapter 35, which we've always ascribed to the millennium, but I believe do affect or start with the church today and bleed over into the millennium with physical Israel. But they start with spiritual Israel with the present Israel of God, Zion, and Jerusalem, not the physical Jews, but the spiritual Jews. Now, it is in the middle of this context, and this context which we have just read about the works of Hezekiah, which are written here, not just in Kings and Chronicles, but are written here in the book of Isaiah, a book of prophecy for the end time. I believe I'm correct in saying that worldwide represented The church, I mean, the church under Herbert Armstrong, uh, is typical of Hezekiah. Since all of this is about the end time church, Hezekiah's story has to fit somewhere, and it is about the church of God. So the story of Hezekiah, therefore, has to fit the church of God. It's that simple. So we should be taking personally. The instruction that is given from Hezekiah's life, both the good and the bad, and what he did in 2 Chronicles 30 with the Passover and the getting rid of idols with government, with tithing, and with laying up stores for the future, I think are very, very important messages for us today. Now, if we will get these things in order, it will not be too long before the Assyrian does come. And it will not be long before a greater number of the church can escape from Babylon. Now, I think that the opportunity to to escape from Babylon that came after 70 years has already been afforded a few. Remember, I said that I felt that 1933 or 34 might have been the beginning of the 70 years. And therefore, 19, uh, I mean, 2004, three or four, might be the end of the 70 years. And it is about this time, as we end the year 2004 and move forward, that God has spent a couple of years establishing a community of God's people that gives people an opportunity of a place to go. Not perfect by any means. None of us are perfect by any means. We still have a long way to go to be like God. And that is our comparison. We don't compare ourselves to the rest of the church by any means. We compare ourselves to God. And therefore, we have a great deal to do. So I'm not talking that we are specifically special as individuals. But I think God is using us as an opportunity and a preparation crew to provide a place for others to come when the time is right for that to happen. And I consider it a great honor, and it is very humbling, that God would use us to help prepare for others. So even in spite of the problems, that exists in the world, and especially in terms of how it affects us in the church today, there is going to come a time when God is going to turn his face back to us. We'll see that again over and over. We've seen it many times, but we'll see it again in the book of Isaiah before we reach the end. But there's a change here in chapter 40. It says, comfort you, comfort you, my people, says your God. In spite of all that has transpired, in spite of all that we have done wrong and how wrong we've been in our Laodiceanism, there is going to come a time when it is going to turn around. So God says, comfort you, comfort you, my people, says your God. Speak you comfortably to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare, or as my margin says, her appointed time is accomplished that her iniquity is pardoned. God says he will forgive our sins in one day in another scripture in Isaiah. I'm not going to go there for sake of time. We'll get to it. That is repeated in several different ways through Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. There is an appointed time when God's wrath is going to turn away. That is from those who are faithful. His wrath will continue with those who are not faithful, and they will go into the tribulation. But for those who are seeking God with their hearts, he will turn to them, and he is going to call his remnant together. And this, in chapter 40, is picking up the story of Zechariah 3 and 4, of the two witnesses, Revelation 11 and showing that they are the ones who give oil and comfort to the people of God. And that has to happen before the tribulation begins. It has to happen because their first job is to the church as Revelation 11 shows to get the church ready. And then the message begins to go to the world later in Revelation 11. So he says, speak comfortably, but the iniquity is pardoned, for she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God has chastened us. He's doubled up on the chastening. And I don't know how long it's going to last now or when this is going to turn around and we will find blessings such as we have never, ever seen before. We're entering a section of Isaiah that is very encouraging and comforting for spiritual Israel today forties, the fifties of Isaiah, even into the sixties. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Before Christ returns, there has to be a way prepared. Now, there was a way prepared for his first coming through John the Baptist. He was sent to preach that there is one coming. And that has to be a lot of the message for the end time church as well. Because this is speaking of the return of Christ in his glory, as we'll see in the context shortly. So the work of that John the Baptist, and it is quoted in Luke 3 and other places, but this prophecy in Isaiah was about that John the Baptist that came before Christ was born or before Christ began his ministry, actually. They were both alive at that point when he began preaching. But he was crying in the wilderness. Now, he was out in the physical wilderness and desert preaching along Jordan, but he was also in a vast spiritual wilderness beginning to preach the kingdom of God and that Christ would be coming. And he said, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. Now it's easy to think of mountains being knocked down and valleys being raised, but that's not the only meaning that we find here. Let's tie in some scriptures quickly. I want to go back, first of all, to Malachi 1. Malachi 1. This is very much an end-time book. (coughs) Chapter 3, I mean. Malachi 3, (coughs) verse 1. Malachi 3, 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, whom you delight in, behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he talks about the things that Christ is going to do when he returns. So he's saying that he will send a messenger ahead of time, showing that he is coming. When royalty comes, you always prepare the way, don't you? I mean, in our country, if a visiting royalty from somewhere comes, we roll out the red carpet and we have all kinds of things that we do, set up a state dinner and all kinds of functions to entertain them while they are here. And Christ certainly is royalty, above all royalty. And we have to prepare ourselves and we have to prepare for him. We have to make a place. Now let's go to... uh, Zechariah, just back a few pages to Zechariah 4. Now this is speaking of the two anointed ones, chapter 4, verse 14, which compares to Revelation 11. The only two anointed ones mentioned in the Bible, so it has to be the same ones. But speaking of Zerubbabel in verse 7, it says, Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace to it. <clears throat> so the analogy of the mountains and hills becoming a plain apply to Zerubbabel of the two witnesses. Now go back for a moment then to Isaiah 40. It's talking about preparing the way and making straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low. Now mountains in the Bible, in the prophecies, are symbolic of governments. Hills and mountains, small governments and big governments, governments great and small, in other words, are going to be devastated before by the power of God through men. Just as... Egypt was destroyed by God through Moses and Aaron. The governments of this world are going to be knocked flat by the end time work. So it starts with making straight in the desert a highway for God. In other words, an easy way to get there. There are a lot of complicated things and issues in the church today. All kinds of doctrines are being uh, put forth, some of them very complicated. And even something as simple as the calendar is being made very complicated, A, by the Jews, and B, by those who have departed from the Hebrew calendar but still stick to some of the thinking of the Jews. Herbert Armstrong had a way of making things simple and understandable. And that is what needs to be done today. We need to make it simple and understandable so that people can know and easily see if they have minds that are open and seeking and searching, so they can see what God is doing and how he is doing it. <coughs> Excuse me, and make it possible then For people to find God and find his work in what he's doing. So every valley, every government shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low. (coughs) The crooked straight and the rough places plain. Now ultimately, I think that will also happen physically to the land so that Israel going into the millennium as well as the rest of the world will have a better place to live. But the spiritual analogy always comes first. So the governments of this world are going to be knocked flat. And people then will be able to see where God is working. Because they will see that God is giving power to his church. Review those last tapes of the minor prophets. Where the answers begin to come forth in the prophecies. You start out in Hosea, Joel, and Amos uh, with the gloom and the doom of what is happening, and you wind up with some very encouraging messages from Zephaniah on about how God is going to deliver His people, His church, and the spectacular way in which He is going to do it. And that is exactly what we're talking about here. Let's go back to Luke 1 for a moment. Luke 1. Here we're going to see, in Luke 1 and 3, some of what the message is to be and was. Now this is where Zechariah is speaking to his son, John the Baptist, one one who will become that. Verse 67, uh, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. So even as God began to send the message of redemption, a message of hope to his people that there was a Savior coming through John the Baptist in the gloom and the doom of God scattering the church today, there has to be a message of relief, a message of redemption, a message that Christ is coming soon and that he will solve the problems and that he will solve the problems in the church for those who are seeking And has raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies. Isn't that what we've been reading in Isaiah? How he says in Isaiah 8, don't fear the conspiracy, but fear God. That is part of the message that has to come at the end, and that's what Isaiah is talking about. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. We'll see that here in a moment in Isaiah. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. God will not cast us off forever, but he will remember his promises. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham. That he would grant to us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness. And righteousness before him all the days of our life. What is the message? That we need to be holy and righteous before God. Not our righteousness, but the righteousness of God, as Isaiah 54 points out, and we'll get there. And you, child, speaking to John the Baptist, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for you shall go before the face of the eternal to prepare his ways, to make announcements. To let people know what is coming. To give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. That through Christ, forgiveness can come, our sins can be blotted out, and we can have salvation. And that is the message that has to be to the church today, doesn't it? Revelation 3, we were all puffed up in how righteous we thought we were, and most cling to that today. They realize there is a lot of unrighteousness, but nearly everyone says that's someone else. I'm okay. We've been over that ground many times, but it is so important to get that we cannot allow ourselves to think that we are okay when we are blind and naked and a long ways from being like God. Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high has visited us, To give light to them that sit in darkness. Now, is, is that true today as it was in the days of John the Baptist before Christ began his ministry? The whole world was in darkness. Judah was certainly in darkness. Judaism was a false religion. And in the shadow of death is the church not today in the shadow of death. Going through the death throes famine, pestilence, and a spiritual sword. To guide our feet in the way of peace, Haggai says that in the latter temple we will find peace. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing to Israel. Now I'm going to hold a finger here. We'll be back to Luke 3 in a moment. But I want to go back to Isaiah 40 here. We read verse 4 about how things, the world, the governments of it, will be made low before the two witnesses who bring plagues wherever they desire. And anyone who tries to kill them will be devoured by fire from their mouths. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Now God is going to begin to show his glory through men, just as he did In Egypt, he did not just himself do it, but he used Moses and Aaron, and they announced what God was going to do, and God is going to use men again to announce what is going to happen, and that it will happen. God's glory will be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. The whole world is going to see the work of God. There are going to be two works, the work of Satan, which is going to encompass nearly everyone on earth, and the work of God, which is going to be a righteous few. There will be those two camps, and that is all. All will worship the beast except the very elect. And all flesh is going to see it on TV monitors and computer screens. When the two witnesses die in the streets of Jerusalem, it will be seen on television and computers and newscasts around the world. And they will party and send gifts one to another. The whole world is going to see God's glory against Satan's false miracles. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Now, ultimately, the very glory of Christ himself coming will be the ultimate fulfillment of this. But he's going to begin to show his glory and prepare the way before he ever shows up in person to the world. Now, when he comes in that final fulfillment of this, every eye will see him as he comes. He is going to manifest himself through humans, and then he will manifest himself in reality. He has always done that. All right. Verse 6. The voice said, Cry. And he said, What shall I cry? What is the message that needs to go out? Prepare a way. Make it plain. Make it understandable. But what is it? All flesh is grass, and all the godliness thereof is as the flower of the field. Now that reminds me of the same things James said when the New Testament church was beginning to fall apart toward its end. The grass withers. The flower fades. Because the Spirit of the Eternal blows upon it, surely the people is grass. When God begins to blow His hot breath on this world, through those whom He will choose to do it, all flesh will be like grass before a prairie prairie fire. In other words, the end of the age is coming and most people are going to die. And if you're just looking to human resources to save you, you are in dire trouble. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. God has made this pronouncement. Mankind is basically going to be destroyed before the millennium begins and there's a new beginning. All right, in verse 9. O Zion that bring good tidings... Or as my margin says, O you that bring good tidings to Zion. Get you up into the high mountain. You get higher so that the voice can be heard. If you're standing down in the bottom, it's hard to hear. But you get up to be seen and heard. So there's going to be a time that God will cause some to stand high. Now, they will have to go and confront the government as well. Remember, we've already seen that the mountains will be made low and the hills be made low. So they will eventually have to go before the governments of this world. Remember Christ saying, you'll go before kings and and, uh, world rulers? Don't fear what you will say because I'll give you words to say. Get up into the high mountain. O oh, you that send good tidings to Jerusalem. Zion and Jerusalem are the church. Hebrews 12, 22, 23, 24. We know that one well by now, I hope. And the Israel of God is the church in Galatians. So when he says here, the mess what he's saying here is the message goes first to the church. You that tell good tidings to Zion and to Jerusalem, not just the governments of the world. Remember, I mean, uh, Revelation 11, 1, 2, and 3 say, leave out the altar of the Gentiles, go to them that worship in the temple and at the altar, the ministry and the membership of the church. So he says, you're going to bring good tidings to the church, get you up to the high mountain. I would Think, then, that that means to go up against the governments of the church, of all the splinters, and tell them the message. You that give good tidings to Zion and Jerusalem, lift up your voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid. Doesn't he tell those in the latter temple to be of good courage, fear not, and to work? Same message right here. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, that is, say to the churches, Behold your God. You don't know your God. Behold your God. All flesh is as grass you better look to God, is the end-time message to the church. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Now, we've seen before that the arm of strength is given to the two witnesses. So this is talking of the time before Christ comes, when he begins to work through men to tell the church what the church needs to hear. His arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. So a way has to be prepared, and then when he comes, he will bring his reward with him for work well done. Let's see that, In where would you think we would read that? Why don't you turn there? Where did you go? I went to Revelation 11. That's the story about the two witnesses. And after they die, verse 15, the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Verse 18, And the nations were angry, and your wrath is come in the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that they should give reward to your servants, the prophets, and to the saints. And then that fear your name, small and great, and should destroy them which pollute or destroy the earth. So, what we are reading here in the context of Isaiah 40 is the beginning of the message, the final message to the church first, then to the world, and it culminates in Christ returning to this earth, his reward with him. It's the exact way it is laid out in Revelation 11, the story of going to the church, then going to the world, then Christ returning in person and bringing his reward with him. We're reading the same thing in Isaiah 40 that we read in Revelation 11. Let's see a little bit more about the message in Luke 3, if you still have your finger there and it's not turned blue by now. Here's a little bit of how John the Baptist was inspired and interpreted Perhaps the message of Isaiah 40. Verse 3 of Luke 3. Speaking of John the Baptist, And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So he said, Repent and be baptized. Same message that came in Acts 2.38 to the church from the apostles. Repent and be baptized. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, <laughs> Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth. Did John the Baptist finish that? No, he did not. Did Jesus Christ return in glory and do the things that we're about to read about and already have started in Isaiah 40. No, that did not happen. It was a type, and Christ coming the first time was only an introduction and a type of what he would do in the end in great power. The message of John the Baptist was a type of what will happen at the end, and the end time work of the John the Baptist will be far greater than than that of the original John the Baptist. Because everything at the end is going to be with great drama, great power, and great miracles, which the original John the Baptist did not do, and Christ did miracles, but quietly. But what he is going to do now is turn the world upside down, which he did not do when he came the first time. That was merely the introduction What we are going to see next is the climax in both the work of God through men and the work of God directly. (coughs) Going on. He's quoting from Isaiah about the valleys being filled and every mountain brought low. The crooked made straight, the rough ways should be made smooth. Verse 5 and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, that's quoted from Isaiah 40, and certainly there was a type. But did all flesh see the salvation of God? Now, that's the ultimate fulfillment. And it starts with salvation to us in the new covenant, and it ends with the salvation of virtually, well, I say virtually, almost everyone in the millennium. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized. Now, here are people who are coming to listen to his message, and he's not real friendly with them, is he? They came forth to be baptized, and he said to them, O generation of vipers. Wait a minute now, you're not being very friendly, are you? You're sons of snakes, is what he told them. Who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In other words, you're not willing to change your lives. You just want to be protected. There are a lot of people out there right now in the church of God who do not want to change their lives, who do not want to come out of Babylon, but they want to be protected. And they want to know where to run when Babylon falls. They are thinking like the people John called sons of snakes. Now I'm sure you can think of someone that applies to besides you. Now what was John the Baptist's message? Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance. Change. Don't be the way you are. Change. And begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father, or, in modern parlance, we have Herbert Armstrong to our father. Same thing. Same attitude. Hey, don't knock us. We follow Herbert Armstrong. Yeah. But didn't God blow apart Herbert Armstrong's work? Didn't he say the latter temple has to supersede it in every way? Isn't the message today that we have to do better than we were doing? Isn't it that we all slumbered and slept and we'd better wake up and repent? We are going to be judged by the law of God. Worldwide has already been judged and taken back to Babylon. Will we come out of Babylon or will we cling to it? For I say to you that God is able of these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Isn't there another place that says that if we do not do what we're supposed to do, God will raise up stones? And now also the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Now there's one I had not noticed before. Remember Zechariah 11? About three trees, the oak, the cedar, and the pine, I think it was. Three anyway. Three big trees being cut down. Three shepherds cut off in one month. Here is proof, as I see it, that the axe is laid to the root of the trees. The churches are going to be cut down. Every tree, therefore, which brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I think the analogy of the tribulation is very close here. The fire of tribulation. Most of the church is going into the tribulation. Only those who produce good fruit, who repent of Laodiceanism that includes us, are going to be protected. And the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? Well, they're taking the message so far. He called them sons of snakes. Then he told them to repent and change. And they still didn't really understand what was wrong with them. So they said, what shall we do then? What was John the Baptist's answer? Remember, he is a type of the John the Baptist to come. He answered and said to them, he that has two coats, let him impart to him that has none. And he that has meat or food, let him do likewise. God calls upon us. To share everything we have that someone else might need. It's very cold in the church today. There's not much heat being generated. The clothes that we're wearing are the clothes of Babylon. And he tells us to put on the white garments of righteousness. The doctrine, the understanding, the focus that people have is missing. They are not being fed. That is a very common complaint throughout the churches of God today. We're just not being fed. We're not receiving information that will have help us and cause us to grow. What are we to do then? Are we to sit on what we have, or are we to share it with those who do not have? Will we be selfish and try to save ourselves from the wrath to come, or will we help others? We must. Somehow, get the message, the information we have to the church. I feel that it is imperative we do that. We must share what we have. Remember what I said earlier? To him who has given much, much is required. With knowledge comes responsibility and accountability. Accountability. The message of the prophecies is repentance from dead works, changing our lives, turning to God with our whole hearts and putting on the holy garments of righteousness, and not being lifted up and egocentric about it, but be humble and meek and willing to share what we have with others who have need. We're in a time of great famine of the word. And it is headed toward a time of total famine of the word. There is a window of opportunity for us to get the word out there. We must do it. I think that this is something that is very important. And I told you about the during the announcement period of someone who said, we're the only ones who understand what is really happening in the church. And, and he's on the internet and has explored all kinds of different splinter groups, and his assessment is we're the only ones who are truly facing the real issues of the church today. To me, that is very scary. And with it comes a weight And I think it's a weight that we must answer to. If God has given us information, we need to be sharing it. Now let's go back to Isaiah 40. Isn't the message today that human life and human ways are going to wither and fade and be burned up? We had better look to God. Behold your God. Verse 11. His work is before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Now, I won't go there, but uh, I'll refer to Ezekiel 34 where it talks about the shepherds that we have been and have had. I say have been because I've been one of them who did not do what we should have done. And he said he will give us shepherds like David toward the end of Ezekiel 34, the middle of it at least, who will gently lead, will help, will strengthen. While we must cry aloud and spare not and tell God's people their sins, At the same time, there must be patience and mercy and loving kindness and gentleness to lead them to God. So the message has to be strong, but we must be gentle and loving at the same time. Because that's the way Christ is. Now, is he strong? Will he send tribulation and plagues upon the earth? And be, in that sense, very violent about it. And yet, at the same time, it will culminate in gently leading to good grass and good water. But that's what it takes to shake us loose to the point we will be humble and meek and teachable. And get rid of our carnal approaches and approach approach God's word with fear and trembling. To this man will I look, to him that is of a contrite heart and fears and trembles at my word, says the eternal. Those are the ones that he'll pick up and lead and protect and guide and help. And he's going to start with the church because that's the context here. The end time church. And then he tells us who he is, lest we forget. Now this reminds me of the whole book of Job and the lesson that Job had to learn. I won't go back and review that whole book, but let's start reading in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with the sand and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in balance? Has man done that? We've got our big telescopes. We try to plumb the depths of the universe to see how far it is out there, how big it is, what all is there. And the astronomers will admit that they're just barely scratching the surface. They're finding new planets, new solar systems uh, all the time. New stars that they've never seen before. They haven't measured it. They don't know how big it is. They don't know what all is out there. Who has? God has named every star. He knows every one of them by name. Our dictionary isn't even big enough if we used every word in our dictionary to give every star a different name. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand? We're just now getting to the place where we can begin to explore the depths of the oceans. It's a great mystery to us still. Verse 13, who has directed the Spirit of the Eternal, or being his counselor has taught him? What have you ever told God, mankind, that he didn't already know? Absolutely nothing. With whom took he counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment? Has God ever appeared to you or anyone else and, and said to, you know, I came to consult you to see if you might have the answer to this? <laughs> Never happened yet. Never will. Have you taught him knowledge and showed to him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket. Just like the the whole nations, all the nations of the world are like a drop in a bucket. I remember milking a cow in a stainless steel milk bucket. And the first little squeeze resounds out of the bottom of that bucket. It hits with a real ping. And God says, that's all the nations of the earth are to him. I was sitting in my chair back there a little earlier during the sermonette, and I had one drop of water hit me on top of the head that had come through the skylight. Now, my head is not a bucket necessarily, but just that one little drop on my head is similar to, he says, what the nations are to God. Now, they may be pretty impressive to us, the mankind who is involved in politics, but they don't mean a thing to God. They're counted as the small dust of the balance. You know, you start weighing things on a balancing scale and there's little fine dust on it. So the nations are just like the fine dust that doesn't even weigh. Behold, he takes up the islands or the coastlines as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn. God wanted to warm his feet. Lebanon and all the cedars of Lebanon aren't enough to build a fire for God. Nor the beasts thereof are sufficient for a burnt offering. All the animals on the earth that are clean aren't sufficient or aren't equal to or aren't worth God's attention. Isn't this the language you use with Job? Where were you when Leviathan was created? Where were you when I did all these things, Job? You think you're pretty hot stuff? Isn't that what we say of ourselves as Laodiceans? We're okay. We have everything we need. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing in vanity. <coughs> Not even worth a thought. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare him to? There's nothing in our physical realm anywhere that we could say, well, this is like God. Our highest mountains, our biggest trees. they are nothing compared to God. The workman melts a graven image, and the goldsmith spreads it over with gold and cast silver chains. We make things as cleverly, as craftily as we possibly can from the finest things we can find on earth. But they're nothing compared to God. I saw a kid, I guess it was Thursday, at a tire store, sitting in a Jeep. And I do not know, nor did I even bother to count, because I couldn't look at how many holes he had in his head. He had six or seven holes in both ears, Five or six sticking out his nose, one through his lip, one through his eyebrow. I'm not sure about the chin. But to look at his face, it was just decorated all over. And he was sitting like there like he was really something. And I almost threw up. There's a picture on the internet being emailed around now with a woman who has over 2,500 piercings in her body. She's in the Guinness Book of World Records, most pierced woman. And you talk about ugly. We can decorate ourselves up. We can make graven images and idols of all kinds. But it's nothing compared to God. Verse 20, he that is so impoverished that he has no oblation chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks to him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. So man does all these things. He he tried it at Babel, didn't he? We're going to make a building that no one can move. How long did it take God? Just like that. The New World Order is one to prepare a government, a one-world order, that they think cannot be moved. They will rule the world forevermore. How long, when God sets his hand to it, will it take to remove it? Verse 21. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sits upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are his grasshoppers. God sits above the circle of the earth, looking down on it, and we're all just like so many grasshoppers to him. But stretches out the heavens as a curtain, and spreads them out as a tent to dwell in. And the universe is his home. We might have our little building of sticks or stones down here that we're proud of. For God has the whole universe at his tent that brings the princes to nothing. And that's exactly what he's going to do. He makes the judges of the earth as nothing, for His vanity. Yes, they shall not be planted. Yes, they shall not be sown. Yes, their stock shall not take wood in the earth. And he shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither, and the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. <clears throat> All the things we're proud of. Washington's monument will be knocked down. To him, whom then will you liken me, or shall I be equal? says the Holy One. Are we impressed with the New World Order? Are we afraid of it? Why not fear him? Prot out your credentials. Do you think you're really something? What do you got? Lift up your eyes on high and behold who has created these things that brings out their host by number. He calls them all by names by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power. Not one fails. God can sustain this entire universe and nothing in it will fail. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? Why why do you say anything? Now, Job realized it was a time to shut up and listen, and then he began to say finally at the end of the book, now I see who you are. The whole church is going to begin to say, now I see who you are. Remember those sermons at the end of Malachi about what God is going to do at the end and how the hearts of the children and the fathers will be turned? Turned to God first, turned to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our spiritual father, second, and physically turned father to son, third. When these things start happening, when God begins to show who he really is, it's when our children will open their eyes and begin to say, wow. Now right now they despise. The church is falling apart. Nothing seems to be happening We seem like hypocrites before them. They aren't real impressed. And they're leaving. But I will tell you someday, they're going to see things that are going to astound them. And then their hearts will turn. I don't expect it to live. A few will listen, but most are not. And they won't. Until God begins to move, as he says he will do in Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Why say "You, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? He says to the church, why do you think you're getting away with what you're doing? How can you sit there, not changing, not repenting, not turning to God with your whole heart, not fearing and trembling before every word of God, not just those that you like, and throwing out the ones you don't like, if someone is promulgating today in the church. Why do you do that? God sees it all. He doesn't miss anything. Or, I've been good, God will forgive me, and continue on the way you are. That cannot be. We must change. Have you not known, have you not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, faints not, neither is weary? There is no searching of His understanding. He gives power to the faint, And to them that have no might, He increases strength. How are we going to get through what is coming upon us, brethren? By turning to God. He is the only one who can give the strength and the power to get through this. We try to do it on our own, it won't work. We must turn to God. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. Things are going to get so bad that it's not just the old folks that cave in and can't stand it, but the youth, the young ones who are full of them, vigor, vitality and verve, are going to find they can't handle it either. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. Aren't we going to flee on the wings of the great eagle? God is going to give strength, power, and help to those who look to him. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Blessed is he who endures to the end, who is given power by the grace of God to get through all this. That's the one we look to. That's the power that we must tap. The power of all the universe. He lays out his credentials here before us and says, you look to me and you will have the strength of the eagles. Well, I'm out of time and that's a good place to stop. But there is a great deal of encouragement ahead.